faithfulness of a poor widow who gave but two small copper coins, for she gave all that she had. The world crowns the power of a Simeon Magus, or Simon Magus, who held crowds spellbound by his astonishing works. But God, dear ones, crowns the faithfulness of a young, seemingly insignificant little boy who gladly gave up his whole lunch to Jesus, consisting of only five barley loaves and two fish, so that Jesus could feed literally thousands. This Lord's Day, dear ones, we want to consider in Luke chapter 16 the parable of the unjust steward. Luke chapter 16. And I would have you notice that this parable is not addressed to godless pagans outside of the church who profane the name of Christ, though obviously all of these truths do pertain to, in some way or another to all people. But the Lord addresses this parable of the unjust steward to his own disciples. And we read that in verse 1, And he said also unto his disciples, And so this particular parable, dear ones, we cannot say, well, that's good for those who are outside of the church. That's who the unjust servant refers to. Jesus spoke this parable to those of his own disciples. Jesus addresses this parable to us, dear ones, as well. We who have feasted at the table of covenant blessings, who have tasted the good word of God, we who have drank freely of the benefits of sonship and fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ and with fellowship with all of His people, much has been given to us and therefore much is required of us. The point of this parable that we consider this Lord's Day is that we are indeed stewards of God. Stewards of all that God has blessed us with. Whatever we have is a blessing from God, whether it be that of finances, whether it be that of talents, whether it be that of time, whatever it may be, God has blessed us with these that we might use them in His kingdom. And so, the the parable is simply illustrating the fact that we are managers of God's resources. These do not belong to us. These are God's resources. We have them as a result of His gift. And so, we cannot selfishly nor childishly cling to what God has given us crying out, it's mine, it's mine, it's mine. You can't take it away. Now, as faithful stewards, we must rather declare with grateful hearts, it's thine, it's all thine. 
None of it belongs to me. You know, King David prayed, All things come from thee, and from thy hand we have given back to thee. Job proclaimed, When all that he had was taken away from him, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, Blessed be the name of the Lord. I'd like for us to consider three main points in the sermon today. The first is the parable as it's explained by Jesus. The second point being the application that's made by Jesus. And then thirdly, one other application that I would make to our situation today. And so let's consider the parable as is explained by the Lord Jesus, first of all. And we see, first of all, <clears throat> as we consider this parable, concerning this steward, that he was a dishonest steward. He was an unjust steward. He mismanaged the affairs, the wealth, the possessions of his master. Look at verse 1, chapter 16, verse 1, the, the dishonesty of this steward. <clears throat> there was a certain rich man which had a steward, and the same was accused unto him that he had wasted his goods. The Lord relates in this parable that a rich man had a steward who was squandering his wealth. You see, a steward is supposed to not to squander, but if anything, a steward should be protecting and should be providing for the household. That was what a steward was to do. Uh, a steward was one to whom, in those days, the master could entrust his whole household when he was away. He would know that his family was being cared for. His family was being provided for. He would know that all of this was taken care of. The steward was not to be like the one that we find in Matthew 24. That steward, it says, when his master left, beat the fellow servants. He not only mismanaged the funds, but he abused the people that he was supposed to care for who were beneath him. Now, in this case, in Luke chapter 16, we don't find this steward abusing those under him. His particular sin seems to be that he was simply wasting. I don't mean that that's insignificant, but that seems to be the essence of what he was doing. He was wasting the resources which his master had entrusted unto him. In fact, it might even appear that he was well-liked by others. He was well-liked by, by others in this particular parable, but he was nevertheless 
embezzling his master's wealth. The second thing that I would point out about the parable as it's explained by Jesus is the discharge of this steward. Not only his dishonesty, but he is called to account and he is discharged from his service. In verse 2, And he called him and said unto him, How is it that I hear this of thee? Give an account of thy stewardship, for thou mayest be no longer steward. Now, in the most narrow sense, we, I believe, would understand the steward to be one who has entrusted those precious things to dispense to God's household. In the most narrow sense, what we're looking at here, I think, I believe God is teaching, is the responsibility of a minister, of those who are in leadership to care for the household of God and not to squander God's wealth. God's blessings, to not misuse them. But in a larger application, we can certainly make application to all of our lives because in another sense, we are all stewards of God's grace and God's gifts. And we will see that in particular, what Jesus is pointing out is that there have been unjust stewards in the leaders of Israel. The scribes and the Pharisees have squandered the riches, the blessings of the covenant. And they have not fed the flock. They have rather fleeced the flock. They have cared for themselves more than they cared for the people of God. And this is an unjust, wicked stewardship on the part of anyone that must be repented of. The steward was called to give an account as to how he had managed his Lord's property. And he was told, because of his mismanagement, that he would no longer be a steward. He would be discharged from his service as a steward. Dear ones, in a very real sense, as we apply this truth not only to pastors and elders, but as we apply this truth to our own lives, there is a very real sense in which we will be discharged of our stewardship at death. And then we will stand before God to give an account as to how we have handled all of the blessings and all of the possessions which God has given unto us. And none of us will be able to escape that accounting. We will all be, at that point, discharged of this present earthly stewardship. The Word of God is filled with accounts, with passages which teach that we will stand before the Lord and give this account before Him. Thirdly, we notice concerning this parable as it is explained by Jesus, the foresight of the steward. He's just been told that he's going to be discharged. 
And now in the parable, the Lord commends this steward for his foresight. Look at his foresight before we look at Christ's commendation of his foresight. In verses 3 through 7, notice what the steward, the unjust steward does in this case. Then the steward said within himself, What shall I do? For my Lord taketh away from me the stewardship. I cannot dig. To beg I am ashamed. I am resolved what to do. That when I am put out of the stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. So he called every one of his Lord's debtors unto him and said unto the first, How much owest thou unto my Lord? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. And he said unto him, Take thy bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much owest thou? And he said, A hundred measures of wheat. And he said unto him, Take thy bill and write for score. <clears throat> now this unjust steward, rather than repenting for his squandering and embezzling his master's resources, rather than falling upon his face and saying, Master, forgive me. I sinned against thee. Rather than humbling himself before his master, he thinks to himself, confesses within his own heart his own laziness. When he says, I can't dig. That's not my line of work. I can't provide for myself by digging. And then he says, furthermore, to beg I am ashamed. I'm too proud to beg. What am I going to do to provide for myself? And so he comes up with a plan. He exercises foresight to prepare for the time when, we, when he will be discharged from his stewardship and be provided for at that point in time. And this is his plan. He calls all of the, uh, the, the debtor, debtors who owe his master this amount or that amount, he calls them into his presence because, you see, he's the steward and he handles those things on behalf of the master. He calls them to himself and he says, how much do you owe my master? They tell him, he said, write 50. Write 80 instead of 100. And to each one, he lowers the amount that is owed. Because by so doing, he is preparing for himself a place in their home so that they will show him mercy when he is discharged from serving this master. That's the foresight that he exercises. He doesn't simply continue to, to squander the, the, the wealth of the master until he is finally discharged with no place to go, with nothing to do, with no, with no way to provide for himself. He thinks ahead of time. He looks to the future and says, this is what I will do in order to provide for myself when that time comes. No doubt all of these uh, debtors were, uh, were very happy to, 
to receive this particular favor uh, from the unjust steward. Now, it wasn't his to give, but nevertheless, these debtors were very happy to receive that. And that was what he was basing this upon, that he would ingratiate himself to them, that he would find favor with them by lowering the amount that they owed the master. And then we look in this parable as it's explained, fourthly, to the commendation of the Lord Jesus Christ concerning this unjust steward. Or actually, it's the commendation of the master who certainly represents the Lord, but the master uh, who gives the commendation in this particular parable. We read in verse 8, And the Lord commended the unjust steward because he had done wisely. For the children of this world are in their generation wiser than the children of light. And so the master learns of the unfaithful steward's shrewd dealings with the debtors and with his own property with which he has continued to embezzle, to rob and to steal, as it were, from his master. But at first, notice that it is commended the foresight, not the theft, not the robbery, not the unfaithfulness, but the foresight of this unjust steward. And we want to focus on that. The Lord, the Master, commends him for planning for his future. You see, the unjust steward here is certainly blameworthy for what he has done. He's not being praised for the sin that he committed. It is not that the children of the world, dear ones, are truly more wise. When we read in verse 8, For the children of this world are in their generation generation wiser than the children of light. It's not that the children of the world are truly more wise in a biblical sense than the children of light. That's not the point that the Lord is making in this parable. True biblical wisdom simply refers to the application of God's truth, God's word to every area of life. This unjust steward was not wise in that sense. He was a fool in that sense. There is another sense in which he is commended for his wisdom. Another way of looking at wisdom. And that is simply that he was wise in the sense of foresight. Planning for his future. He was a, if we might put it this way, he was a shrewd businessman. And in that sense, he was wise. 
And we know there's a lot of shrewd businessmen who don't have godly wisdom, but are shrewd when it comes to these types of matters in obtaining and knowing how to use riches and well, uh, the resources of this world and to prosper from that. There are many who have that kind of shrewd business savvy. Well, the Lord says that in this sense, many times it appears that the children of this world are wiser than the children of light. The children of the world planning for their future in this world as opposed to the children of light who are not planning for the next world who simply live one day at a time without giving a whole lot of attention to the life to come, to that world to come. Many times we as the true children of God, not the children of the world, but as the children of God, waste the riches of God on worldly desires that will pass away. How much more, since we are the children of light, the Lord Jesus is emphasizing, should we have wisdom? Should we have this foresight in planning for our futures? Right now, by the way in which we handle His resources. In preparing a home for us that will not pass away. You know, by the same token, there are many false witnesses in the world today who witness to error, who witness to false teaching, who are the emissaries of the enemy, of the devil, and who put saints to shame by their courage in standing for their error. Now, we would not commend in those who work wickedness and deceit and false teaching. We would not commend them in any way for their error. But we can say, as Jesus points out with regard to this unjust steward, the foresight, so we can point out, so Christians who have the truth, how much more we should be courageous in knowing that we have not something that's going to pass away, but something that abides forever. So this unjust steward <clears throat> used another's property to plan for his future. He used his master's property to plan for his future. And Jesus says, so should you. You should use another's property, God's property, God's wealth, God's blessings to prepare for your future, for your future home. You see, this parable in its stinging rebuke is directed toward the scribes and the Pharisees at that time who were unjust stewards. And it's directed, dear ones, to all who abuse and mismanage the resources which God has blessed them with. 
and in particular ministers and elders, leaders of the church. For you see, dear ones, in Romans chapter 9, verse 4, we find the blessings which God poured out upon His people. When he said, Paul says that they were given adoption as sons. They were given the covenants, the law, the temple services, the promises, and circumcision. They were given all of these blessings, but they squandered them. They wasted them. They did not use them for the kingdom of God. to, at this point, consider that second point and the application that the Lord himself makes to the parable that he has just spoken. And that application is found in verses 10 through 13, actually verse 9 through 13. And I say unto you, make to yourselves friends of the mammon of unrighteousness, that when ye fail, they may receive you into everlasting habitations. He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. And he that is unjust in the least is unjust also in much. If therefore you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon who will commit to your trust the true riches. And if ye have not been faithful in that which is another man's, who shall give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. And so the Lord in this application to his own disciples first says to them in verse 9, practice foresight yourselves. Plan for your future yourselves. Just as the unjust servant made friends with his master's creditors, so as to prepare for himself a home when he was to be discharged, so you prepare for a home when you are discharged right now. You're to use the same kind of foresight for your future home in heaven. Now the Lord is not declaring... The Lord's not declaring that one can through his own merit, and that might seem to be the case here. The Lord is not saying that through your own merit and through your own works of righteousness that you can inherit the kingdom of God. That's not the point at all. The point has to do not with our merit because they weren't his resources. He was managing someone else's resources. The issue is one of stewardship not of merit. We know that we cannot merit the kingdom of heaven. We cannot merit 
our eternal home in the slightest or in the least. It is only and always on the basis, dear ones, of Christ's righteousness. But we have been entrusted a stewardship and we will give an account of that stewardship. That's the point that the Lord is making. And so we must consider that we are to redeem every resource, redeem the time, redeem the wealth, redeem the gifts and abilities which God has given to us and not waste them. Psalm verse 90, I'm sorry, Psalm chapter 90 verse 12 says, So teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. Don't allow us, Lord, to simply live as if we're going to live without having to give an account. As if we're going to continue, all things will continue just as they presently are. No, there is coming a time when we will give an account. We are to be wise, God says, in numbering our days right now. And for that reason, dear ones, we ought to think often on our death. We ought to consider our own mortality. We ought to think soberly about this truth that we are not immortal as to our bodies, that we will die and we will stand before the Lord. What will we say at that time as we stand before our God? with regard to the stewardship of our children, with, the steward, with regard to the stewardship, husbands of our wives, and wives with regard to your husband and your children. What will you say, dear ones, with regard to the wealth which God has blessed you with and, and the time and how you have used it? What have you spent your possessions on? Have you invested in the kingdom of God with your wealth? God certainly, throughout his word, wants us to have our daily needs met. We are to pray, in fact, to that effect. Give us this day our daily bread. But dear ones, let us not lay up treasures here upon earth and squander our riches in ways that simply promote our own pleasures that do not promote the kingdom of God. Let us be careful and wise because we will give an account for all of these things. 2 Corinthians 5.10 The Apostle Paul says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that every one may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. We must all stand before that judgment seat. In verse 9, <clears throat> making friends, it says, making friends of the mammon or the wealth or riches of unrighteousness. What does that mean? Making friends of the mammon of unrighteousness. 
Well, it does not mean either that we are to spend riches in an unrighteous manner. That's not what it's talking about, making friends of unrighteous mammon. To spend these riches as we please, no. Nor does it mean that riches are evil and wicked in and of themselves. It is not money that is the root of all evil, but it is the love of money that is the root of all evil. However, mammon, wealth, riches are what the children of this world idolize and simply spend on all of their pleasures and desires, taking no thought of the fact of God's kingdom and of His righteousness, but simply spending it as they please. The Lord here instructs the children of the light, dear ones, you who are the children of the light, to use even this wealth, even this that is misused by the unrighteous, to use it for the glory of God. To set it apart and sanctify it in order to prepare a place for you later on when you are with the Lord. To make friends, the Lord Jesus says, by the use of your money. How is that done? By using it for Christ's kingdom, you send ahead of yourself friends, as it were. Everything that you do for the glory of God, you send ahead of yourself, and those friends, those good works, those good deeds, wait for you and welcome you in heaven. They are not the basis upon which you are saved. And but nevertheless, as we stand before God, as we have just read, He will look at all of our deeds. And these very things that we have sent on ahead of us become friends which speak of our character, that we loved the Lord, that we desired His kingdom, that we wanted to follow Him with our whole heart. They become friends which are sent on ahead. You remember in Matthew chapter 25, that picture of the judgment. He'll separate the sheep from the goats and he will say to each of them, when I was in prison, when I was hungry, when I was thirsty, the goats did not care for him. They didn't provide for him, but the, but the sheep did. They visited him when he was in prison. They fed him when he was hungry. They gave him water to drink when he was thirsty. And they say, Lord, we don't remember doing this unto thee. How did we do this unto thee? And the Lord says, when you have done it unto the least of these, my brethren, you have done it unto me. The least of these, my brethren, have gone ahead. And on that judgment day, they will be friends who will stand at that time of judgment to welcome you into the kingdom. 
so the Lord, in his application, tells them, first of all, as his people, to exercise, over, or exercise foresight. And then he tells them, secondly, in his application, to be faithful. Be faithful, stewards. In verses 10 through 12, be faithful. Unlike the unjust steward, you be faithful. The unjust steward had foresight, but he was unfaithful. Don't be like him. You have both. You have foresight, and you be faithful, stewards. In verse 10, he says, be faithful in little. In verse 11, he says, be faithful with earthly wealth. And in verse 12, he says, be faithful with another's wealth. Because if you are faithful in little, you'll be faithful in much. And if you are faithful with earthly wealth, which belongs to another, then you will be faithful with that eternal wealth, which God will entrust to you on that day. And if you are faithful, finally, in verse 12, with another's wealth, then you will be faithful with your own wealth. <clears throat> now, no one can say, but I have so little riches and talents. I have so few gifts. This parable really doesn't speak to me. Faithful and little, faithful and much. You know, this must speak to people who really have something to be faithful over. That's not me. I don't have wealth. I don't have amazing gifts. I don't have talents and abilities like others in the church. This cannot be speaking to me. But indeed, God is speaking to each of you. For whatever little you have, the Lord Jesus says, if you are faithful in that, instead of comparing yourself with what you don't have and what others have, if you are faithful with what God has blessed you, and you're simply seeking to be an honor and a glory to the Lord God with what He has given to you, the Lord says, He will give you more, and you will show your faithfulness in the little, and He will show that by that that you will be faithful in much. And the last point in the application the Lord makes is in verse 13. In effect, choose who you will serve. You can't serve both mammon. You can't serve the earthly things of this world. You can't serve your gifts and abilities and houses and cars. You can't serve them. They become idols. Choose this day whom you will serve. Will you serve the living God? Will you serve the Lord Jesus Christ? And use all of these other things. Not serve them, but use them for the glory of Jesus Christ. They are not your master. They are to be used as good gifts given by God for the kingdom of Christ. Choose you this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. One, one more point, that last point, I'd like to make application in closing today.
Romans 9.4, as we've already alluded to, says that one of the blessings that were entrusted unto Israel for their faithful use and safekeeping was the covenants. The covenants. The covenants which God made with His people as well as the covenants which His people made with God. These were a blessing which God entrusted to His people. But they, as God's people, as we read through the Scriptures, we find that they were continuously unfaithful to these covenants. And they would then renew the covenants which they had made with God. During their time of unfaithfulness, God would send them prophets. Send prophets to the people of God in the Old Covenant as well as in the New to restore and bring them back to their covenant faithfulness. What did they do with the prophets? They ridiculed them. They made fun of them. They persecuted them. They put some to death. And they put the prophet, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, to death. Let me ask you, beloved, are Israel's covenants as to the moral substance of those covenants still binding upon new Israel? Are we as God's new Israel to keep those covenants that God made with his people of old and that the people of God in return made with the Lord God? Are those as well binding upon us? Indeed they are. We find in Galatians chapter 3, verse 15, that even human covenants that have been made cannot be altered or changed. They continue inviolable, unchangeable. How much more covenants made, vows taken unto the living God, continue to be unbreakable, binding upon not simply that person, but the covenant which God made with His people and His people made with God continue to be binding upon all of God's people because, you see, the Scripture looks at God's people not as many separate individuals, but as one moral person. The Old Covenant, the New Covenant is simply a case of a child becoming a man, not of two separate people. Therefore, the covenants which God made with His people in the Old Covenant are binding upon His people in the New Covenant because it is one person who has just grown up, gone from one stage to another. Are Israel's covenants with regard to the Ten Commandments. That was a covenant. Are the Ten Commandments binding upon God's people? Absolutely. Not one jot or tittle, Jesus said, would be erased, would be removed from His law until all be fulfilled. James 2.10 says that if one offends at one point, he is guilty of breaking all. In order to break all, all God's moral covenants or moral law must still be binding. And so, dear ones, all covenants that are faithful to 
and agreeable to the moral law of God bind all of God's people. We are to continue as God's people to be in covenant with God, making covenants unto the living God. That is a blessing which God has passed on to us as schools to safeguard, to protect, and to obey. As Presbyterians, as those who count the covenant, the covenant of grace to be something of value, of unmeasurable value that God will enter into a covenant with his people, of his soul grace. We are bound, dear ones, to continuously enter into covenant, to renew covenant with them. In the 17th century, two prominent covenants were established with God's people, amongst God's people. The National Covenant of Scotland and the Solemn Reading Covenant. These covenants are founded upon and agreeable unto the Word of God. They are binding upon us as they were upon the generation that took them. Because all of God's all of God's people are one moral person. We are united together. And if they are faithful to the word of God, they bind us. And because that is true, because we are one world person as the church, and I would even add, many of us in this room are actually blood descendants of those who took covenant. We actually, our forefathers came from Scotland, Ireland, and England. And we are even further bound and obligated beyond simply the moral necessity of the law that it's agreeable to the word of God, we are bound because our forefathers swore to uphold those covenants. And we are their children. We are bound by these covenants, dear ones. We have been, as their children, entrusted with that sacred heritage, one which God has given unto us to keep covenant with him. They bind us as individuals, they bind us as families, as churches, and as nations to be faithful to our covenant God for all the rich mercy and grace that he has shown unto us through Christ. Let us not be like, a, like Israel of old, dear ones, who spurned as an unjust steward the covenants, but let us like a covenanter of the 17th century, James Guthrie, let us like him cling to these faithful covenants founded upon and agreeable to the Word of God. Mr. James Guthrie would not 
bow the knee to any who wanted him to break covenant with the Lord God that had been sworn in the National Covenant and the Solemn League and Covenant. And for his faithfulness as a minister of the gospel, he was brought before the courts. He was sentenced. And he was sentenced to death because he would not submit himself to breaking the covenants which God had made with his people and his people had made with God. As he was led to the scaffold to be hung and then beheaded, this was the witness. He preached for about an hour upon the scaffold there. And in part, this was his testimony. He said, I do bear my witness to the National Covenant of Scotland and solemnly and covenant betwixt the three nations. These sacred, solemn, public oaths of God, I believe, can be loosed or dispensed with by no person or party or power upon earth, but are still binding upon these kingdoms and will be so forever hereafter and are ratified and sealed by the conversion of many thousand souls since our entering thereinto. I bear my testimony to the protestation against the controverted assemblies and the public resolutions. These were, these were ways in which the government and the church at that time were trying to subvert the covenants. He said he bears witness and testimony against all of those who would try and subvert these covenants. And then he says, I take God to, re to record upon my soul. I would not exchange this scaffold with the palace or mitre of the greatest prelate in Britain. Blessed be God who hath shown mercy to me, such a wretch, and has revealed his Son in me, and made me a minister of the everlasting gospel, and that he hath deigned in the midst of much contradiction from Satan and the world to seal my ministry upon the hearts of not a few of his people, and especially in the station wherein I was last, I mean the congregation and presbytery of Sterling. Jesus Christ is my light and my life, my righteousness, my strength and my salvation, and all my desire. Him, oh Him, I do with all the strength of my soul commend to you. Bless him, O my soul, from henceforth even forever. He concluded with the words of old Simeon, Now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace, for mine eyes have seen thy salvation. He gave a copy of this, his last speech and testimony, subscribed and sealed to a friend to keep which he was to deliver to his son, then a child, when he came of age. When on the scaffold, he lifted the napkin off his face just before he was turned over and cried, The covenants, the covenants shall yet be Scotland's reviving. Dylan's, the covenants, the covenants will be the reviving 
this church, of this nation, and of this world, the covenants. The covenant God has made with his people. And in turn, the covenant which his people have made with him. Let us not be unjust stewards. Let us walk in faithfulness to all the blessings with which God has blessed us. Let us pray. Please stand. Our Heavenly Father, as unjust stewards of thy resources, we come unto thee, pleading for thy mercy, not wanting to escape our own guilt, but professing and confessing with our own lips that we have been guilty. And we plead with thee, our God, even now, to hear our confession and to look into our hearts, that we might be purged, Lord, of this sin, that we might be faithful unto thee in all of thy ways. O Father, we plead that thou would show unto us mercy and cause us to stand, even as thy faithful martyrs have stood for the truth and not renounce thy covenants. O Lord, we pray that thou would give to us a courage that fears no man. We ask, O God, that thou would cause our church, Lord, to be faithful unto these covenants and that each family would own them as their very own. We ask, O Father, that as well thou would cause us to rejoice in the fact that we walk in the footsteps of these who have been faithful in the past. These are our forefathers. These, O Lord God, who have been faithful are the ones we would emulate and follow as they have followed the Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask our God that thou would impress upon us the shortness of our life. That we would not imply, think that we have many years to come. Let us work let us labor. Let us, Lord, serve thee with all of our being rather than setting back and thinking that we can eat, drink, and be merry for we have much in store. Oh, Father, we pray that thou would seal these truths into our minds and our hearts and make it our rallying call the covenants, the covenants, the reviving of Canada, the reviving of the United States, the reviving of the world. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. 
Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.